0: And if you need one, raise your hand. He'll try to get to you if we've got enough. Uh, I didn't print off any more. They still had a good number from last week. So I was hoping and praying y'all stuck them in your Bibles and kept them till this week. So hopefully you studied on them uh, this last week. Uh, that'd be good. Y'all can, y'all can uh, speak up and comment on the lesson as we go forward this morning. I greatly appreciate Brother Jim Henry filling in for me for two weeks. It's not very often you go out of town two weeks in a row when you're a Bible teacher and find the same guy to to do that, and I appreciate Jim doing that. He did an outstanding uh, job trying to catch me up, especially. Uh, He told me when I left that he was an engineer and I'm a lawyer, so he was going to catch me up while I was gone with the uh, two and a half lessons that I needed done. Didn't quite make it, um, so I'm not going to fault his engineering skills or engineering ability. I think I just gave him too much stuff to do. And uh, y'all see why well, I have problems, but I tell you, it wasn't for lack of trying. I listened to the second lesson that he did last week, and man, he was flying through that. I think it's the fastest I've ever heard Jim speak, uh, but he did an outstanding job. I know. I hope that y'all are garnered a lot from the lesson uh, as we've continued this study in James. We are picking up in James chapter 2. If you want to pick up your Bibles and turn to that book and that chapter and be ready to proceed this morning as we continue our study on growing up and looking at Christian maturity. Any announcements or prayer requests this morning before we get going? All right, let's open uh, with a word of prayer. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. We are grateful to have another first day of the week that we can gather together as a family, that we can open up your word and we can study from it. And God, we're so thankful for the lessons you gave us through James and the lessons that encourage us to be more faithful, more dedicated, and more mature as Christians in our lives as we try to refocus and rededicate uh, our lives as Christians to you and to others around us. God, we ask that you'd be with us throughout the remainder of this study today and through the rest of the quarter. Help us to try and take the lessons we garner from the book of James and apply them in our lives. God, we are tremendously grateful for Jesus. Uh, we, we cannot tell you with enough words how thankful we are for all that he's done for us and for you sending him for our sins. And God, we know that we are not worthy. There's nothing we have done or can do to even prove our worth to you. Uh, But we're thankful for your love, and we're thankful for your faithfulness, and we're thankful for your sacrifice. God, we ask you to continue to watch over us here at Dalreda. Be with us as a congregation. Be with the elders as they lead us, and lead the flock here at Dalreda. Help them to do things that are wise, and those things that are in accordance with your word, and those things which help build up the body here as we labor and toil on this earth, awaiting your Son's second coming. Lord, we are thankful for Jesus, and it's through His name we pray. Amen. As we think about James chapter 2, and as we continue this study here, one quote that the author, that I, one of the books that I'm using said, Immature people talk about their beliefs, but the mature person lives his faith. Hearing God's Word, as James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, and talking about God's Word can never substitute for doing God's word, and I think that's a really kind of a hard pressing point to us as we think about the the change and the shift here in the, in the chapter two. Because we know the chapter divisions weren't uh, inspired. Uh, you know, James, as he's writing his book, didn't say, "Okay, this is beginning uh, chapter two here." Uh, there are divisions that man put in there for easy and ready reference and they tried to divide them among the, the different paragraphs and, and groupings maybe of context. And this split here between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is a pretty good split because if you look, chapter 2 here starts shifting the focus more on practicing the faith as Christians. Uh, and looking at uh, you know, more of a, the practical, hands-on, how do we apply these things. And the theme here in James chapter 2 encourages us to take a second look at how we are acting as Christians and, and instead of just necessarily what we're believing. If you remember those, those first four lessons we've had, and of course here we are, we're chap- fifth lesson, we're already halfway through the quarter, so I'm going to try and speed up to get through the whole book of James. We're just now in chapter 2 of the book of five chapters. But, you know, you see here a shift that tries to emphasize putting some things into action and practicing, not just believing. And I think that that quote that I had a moment ago really kind of hits home to a lot of people. It's easy to come sit in Bible class. It's easy to come sit in Bible study and to listen to the Word, to, to even read the Word of God sometimes, isn't it? But it's not as easy to put it into practice, and to actually make it change our lives. And that's really what the Word of God's got to do. It's got to change our lives. It should change our focus, our mentality, our practice, uh, those things which we choose to do, the actions that we take both outside the church building and inside the church building as we worship as as a congregation, but also as we go out and we're an example And as those lessons we're talking about in Romans chapter 12 kind of talks about the practical hands-on aspects of not letting this world come in and infiltrate our lives and change our lives, but instead allowing the Word of God, letting God get into our lives and transforming us, changing us. If we are the same person we were before we became a Christian, we are doing something wrong. And what James is trying to say here in James chapter 2 is there's a practical hands-on aspect of us taking our beliefs and putting them into action. Making them influence and change and impact our lives. The idea of practicing what we preach. We hear that sometimes a lot, don't we? Uh, My dad was a preacher, so obviously, you know, it's funny how we we heard that phrase from time to time because he was a, a preacher and preached every Sunday, Sunday night. Uh, Wednesdays, usually he was teaching. And so, you know, you heard a lot of people kind of talking against preachers sometimes saying that they need to practice what they preach and get up and say one thing and go out and live in a different. Uh, and that always hit home to me as being a preacher's kid. You see it around us today, in the religious world. One of the biggest faults that atheists and others who are non-religious around us point to is saying, hey, these people say they believe something, but then they turn around and they don't do it. They don't do it reminds me of the lesson Eric Lyons did Wednesday night uh, and, and several others have done during this Wednesday night summer series. The idea of making sure that the Word of God means something in our lives doesn't just say, hey, it means something to me personally, but it actually has changed you for the better to make you more close to God and make you more mature as a Christian. That's what the Word of God should be doing, and if it's not doing it, we should always be questioning it. But, you know, the immature person talks about their beliefs, and we see that around us all the time. The mature person follows their beliefs. They practice those things which they believe. So you see here in chapter 2 a shift here. And really kind of as, as uh, Jim introduced the, the chapter last week, uh, there is a, a, a way that we see in James chapter 2 of, of where we're presented to show how we behave toward others and how we behave toward others is a direct reflection on what kind of beliefs we have. Beliefs we have as a Christian and doctrine... It has a a direct implication on how we believe in God and what we believe in God and how we treat other people. And James chapter 2 shifts to that focus there as he looks at this. I think it's very interesting the way the the author of this one book that I'm using as my outline for this class, uh, he's not getting into necessarily uh, the the rich man and poor man as in uh, direct, just kind of looking at it. But uh, there is a way that James uses four different basic Christian doctrines. And I love the way this is outlined here. Four basic Christian doctrines that help implicate how we should be changed in our lives as Christians as we treat other people. Now, you see James chapter 2, and we're going to read it here real quickly, uh, but the first 13 verses here uh, of what James is talking about. But really, there's, there's a presentment here of two different people that come into the services, so to speak. And you've got a rich man and a poor man. they come in, and it's how are they treated? How are they treated? As James is talking to these Christians that have been scattered abroad, he's saying, hey, how would you treat these individuals? Because it's a direct reflection on your core beliefs as a Christian on what you have chosen to do. And I think that's very interesting as we look at it. Look real quickly. Let's let's read verses 1 through 13 together. My brethren, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing... Also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or or sit sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of all the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man and not not the rich ones that oppress you and the ones that drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Again, let me go read verse 9. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. But whosoever, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, do not, com- do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Real quickly, as we look at the four doctrines that are presented here that implicate and impact how we should treat others, they shine a light on how we treat others. James is looking at four things. And if you look at this, I think it's very interesting because these are at the core of first principles of Christians. Number one, you've got the deity of Jesus Christ. Number two, and that's verses 1 through 4. Number two, you have the grace of God mentioned in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Number three, you have the word of God that is that is provoked and, and used in verses 8 through 11. And then finally, number four, you have the judgment of God that's referred to there in the clothing, uh, closing verses of this section, verses 12 through 13. These four doctrines are in fact at the core, should be at the core of everyone's faith. And I think it's very interesting as James refers to these type of of doctrines as he's talking about how you treat others, James is really referring back to what should have been at the core, at the, the precept of their faith in Christ, at the beginning of their walk with God. These are things that you must believe, you must follow, you cannot turn away from if you are indeed going to be a follower of Christ. And so James is referring back to these, and then you see him incorporating it into how we treat others. How, what, a, what a great combination we see there of that. Let's look real quickly at these four doctrines and try and get through uh, this section in chapter 2 today. First of all, you see the, the deity of Christ. Uh, for those of you who have the handouts there, the, the, obviously the blanks are going to be spelled out there on the screen. So, but uh, the deity of Christ is going to be the first doctrine there if you want to fill it in there on your blank, br- blanks. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, you see a, a, a allusion there uh, to the deity and those things which uh, go back to the very core of who Christ was and, of course, goes back to the the, the beginning and the end of Christ himself, the beginning, of course, the inception, the, the virgin birth, and then ultimately the crucifixion on the cross and the resurrection and then ultimately the uh, raising, the ascension into heaven. They're all referring back to the deity of Christ. All those things would not have occurred had Christ not been the Son of God, but what you see here is there is a, a verse, in verses 1 through 4, a reference back to Jesus Christ and the idea that we hold our faith in Jesus Christ, who He was. There's another translation that says, my brothers, there in verse 1, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, by showing favoritism. And there is an allusion there, of course, back to Jesus Christ and who He is and what He was made up of what his beliefs were, what his actions were when he uh, ministered here on this earth for those three, uh, three years on this earth. Who was Jesus Christ? And what you see is, is really a, a parenthetical to what they were thinking, uh, the Jews and the mentality that they may have had. And obviously, in verse 1, they were having some issues with partiality, favoritism maybe. Uh, if you go back and you look in the text, we're going to get to chapter 3 later on, but there's even a possibility that, that some of them were exalting themselves in the church because of what their place or leadership may have been. Chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you want to be teachers? Well, there's an, there's an allusion there more than likely to the fact that there was some infighting among the Christians that, hey, you know, we're going to try and do whatever we can to, to climb that ladder of authority in the church you know that you know i'm going to be a teacher because a teacher gives me prominence and gives me authority those uh, you know recognition or honor and, and and the jews obviously had a problem with that you can go back and look and, and see matthew chapter 23 you know and the pharisees that's all they cared about right that, that place of prominence that the idea that all eyes were on them when they're praying when they're giving it didn't matter uh, they wanted that place of prominence well very possibly and i think very likely that that same mentality had somewhat infiltrated the church. Unfortunately, it even still infiltrates the church. Uh, The idea that that because you hold a place of leadership or or some role in a congregation that elevates you in prominence and importance. Christ, though, here as James says, had no stomach for such things. It It didn't matter your place. It didn't matter... What a state that you were in. In fact, if you reflect upon Jesus' deity, and we're going to treat each other much, much better. Why is that? Well, the deity of Christ kind of gives us several lessons and several points uh, dealing with things that would make us change. And would influence how we actually look at other people. Why? How? How does the deity of Christ, how does reflecting upon the deity of Christ change who we are? Well, first of all, if you look in the scriptures, what you're going to see is that first, Jesus didn't respect persons. Just exactly what James is telling the brethren here in James chapter 2, don't be a respecter of persons. It is a direct comparison and parallel mentality of who Christ was. Christ did not respect persons. In fact, in Matthew chapter 22, even those that he spoke up against recognized that he was no respecter of persons. God didn't care where you came from. God didn't care what clothes you had on. God didn't really care, um, you know, who you were. But Christ accepted you with open arms. He loved them uh, anyway, the, the smallest to the largest, the oldest to the youngest, the richer to the poor. It didn't matter in Christ's eyes. God, Christ had no respect to person. In fact, He looked upon the heart. It, really, if you think about looking upon the heart, it, I automatically think of back in First Samuel chapter, you know, sixteen, there in about verse seven, where you know Samuel was told to go out and look for the new king. Right when Saul had turned his back on God, and God said, "You're no longer going to be my chosen as the leader of Israel." And Samuel sent out, and he looks upon all these brothers of David, and and you know they're much better looking much stronger, much more strapping. Um, the points made as God anoints David is that God doesn't look at the outward appearances. God looks at the heart. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus didn't respect persons as he ministered to them on this earth. He didn't care what state they came from. He looked at their heart. He wasn't impressed with riches or social status. He, you know, the poor widow who gave her might was just as good, actually was better than those who came in and and gave much, much more to God. The Pharisee, you know, who came in and boastfully gave his large donation wasn't even looked at in the same light or the same respect or the same gratitude as the widow who gave all that she had. He saw the potential in the lives of sinners. and Simon, he saw a rock. You know, the the rename of Cephas? There's a reason for that, I believe, firmly, that Jesus looked inside Simon Peter and he saw someone who was going to be a rock. He was going to be solid. And he was solid. He was there on the first day of the church and the day of Pentecost as he stood up Boldly is what Acts chapter 2 says. They stood boldly there proclaiming who Jesus was. They could have been killed. They could have been chastised. They could have been arrested. It didn't matter. Peter stood boldly. Later on, Peter stood boldly also up for the Gentiles. Don't forget that. Acts chapter 10, when he he was part of Cornelius and the conversion there, Then he ended up having to go and talk to all the Christian leaders in, 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 in in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Peter stood up again and he said, Listen, brethren, we can't do this. Peter was a rock, and Christ saw the potential that Simon Peter as just a lowly fisherman had. Jesus was able to look inside people and to see so much more than we do. You know, in Matthew the publican, he saw a faithful disciple who would one day write one of the four Gospels. The disciples were, you know, so troubled and, and bothered by the fact that Christ sat and talked to the Samaritan woman there. But in fact, what Christ saw instead of of a woman who was living in sin, who had done nothing but surround herself with sin, he saw a woman in need of that living water. And so as he spoke to her and as he reached out to her, Jesus saw something more. When most of us would walk on by, when most of us would look at someone and and just say, "Oh, I feel so sorry for that person. Jesus reached out. He touched them. He hugged them. He cared for them. Jesus was no respecter of persons. And if we fully believe in the deity of Christ and we embrace it just as we should, we are going to try to do everything in our powers to reflect that same deity of Christ in our own lives. Now, true, we're not deity. We don't have the all-knowing mind of, of Christ. We don't have that in our lives. I understand that. I'm not trying to say that we ever will. But if you are trying to follow the steps of the Savior, if you're following the example that Christ set as He walked on this earth, you are going to look at other people and not be a respecter of persons. That's just the bottom line. That's what we're called to do. That's what James reminds us to do here in James chapter 2. We've got to understand that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Even though He disapproved of their sins, you know, He still reached out to them. Why? Because... He was no respecter of persons. He cared about the person and the individual no matter what state there was. It was not compromise, it was compassion. And Jesus and his deity had ultimate compassion on others. We will do well to learn not to be a respecter of persons as we think about Christ's deity. And the other point to think about about Christ's deity is the fact that Jesus was despised and rejected. Even in his deity, even being the Son of God, we are reminded that as he walked this earth, he was despised, he was rejected, he was blasphemed, he was talked about, he was put down. It's a wonderful lesson for our teenagers to really think about. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? You know, the good majority of our Christians, our teenagers are Christians. They put on Christ in baptism. They've been obedient to the gospel. But when you start teaching and thinking and passing along this mentality to them, if we truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we're not going to be fearful about being despised and rejected. It's going to be a given. It's going to be something that's accepted. It's something that's going to be expected in our lives. Jesus, you know, he was a prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53 as someone who was not going to be accepted by others. He was despised and rejected of men. And in fact, what you see in the scriptures, you see time and time again, such as over in Luke chapter 4, where his own hometown turns their back on him. No, he's he's without honor in his own hometown, just like the prophecy said. There's no expectation that that Christ was going to be someone who was welcomed with open arms. What about us? How does this impact us? Well, it's a reminder to us, uh, going back to the partiality, going back to the acceptance factor uh, of things. We can learn, I think, from the negative of this, that we can, we should be unlike those who despise and rejected Christ. We should be more open. We should be more loving to others and trying to uh, get to them and try to uh, listen to them. We're not compromising truth now. And don't get me wrong. I don't want any of this to be be used uh, to me saying we need to compromise or we need to uh, be tolerant of things that are not truthful or not in accordance with God's Word. That's not not where I'm getting at. But you see the idea here that Christ was despised and rejected of men. We shouldn't be doing the same thing to either Him or to others as well. The reminder there of all that Christ gave up to us should be that we love Him, we appreciate Him, and we reach out to Him uh, in humble service. And in fact, it kind of goes along with this next point here is the fact that He was still the glory of God. John 1, verse 14, he became God in flesh, we know that, and, and dwelt among men. The idea that the glory of God was, was manifested in Jesus Christ while he was here on this earth is, is found in several different passages of Scripture through the New Testament as, as Christ talks about you know, God glorifying him in chapter 8. There the idea that God is the one who is lifting him up. And so as, as God, as Jesus, even though rejected by men, despised, turned on, it didn't matter because He still was the glory of God. And so the deity of God here is, is emphasized and shown as being something that's important in the fact that we can, as Christians, uh, embrace and think more about things like Christ would and, and Christ should. Think of it like this. We think about things through the eyes of Christ, His lovingness. His non-respecting of persons. He wasn't prejudiced when he uh, came upon any individual here. Think about the the poor man and the rich man that James confronted us with and and his example in James chapter 2. Jesus would have embraced both of them just equally. It wouldn't matter what they were wearing. It wouldn't matter how much someone could give or not give or or whether they had even been at services the, the week before. Jesus would have embraced them both. How do we practice the deity of Christ in our human relationships? Well, it's, it's quite simple. You, you look at everyone through the eyes of Christ. If the visitor is a Christian, we accept him because Christ lives in him. All right? That's what Christians do. We have that, that mentality of, of being a family. We accept him because Christ is there. They're part of the body of Christ. If he's not a Christian, though, we can receive him as well. Why? Because we don't receive him necessarily in fellowship, but we receive him and encourage him and we teach him And we do that because why? Because Christ loved him. Christ died for him. And so we can look at someone and through the eyes of Christ react and treat them so much better. Oh, there's no doubt. Yes, there's no doubt. No, it. Yeah, it's, I, I agree. Y'all, maybe you didn't hear Emmy or not, but she said, don't you think sometimes that Christians or religious people around the world misuse and, and abuse the idea that Jesus is love? And I think yes, entirely. You know, there, there is the whole thing. Uh, you go out there and you talk to religious denominations and, and they'll focus all day long, especially these emotional, more social kind of gospel preachers out there. All their focus is on is of God does love us. So therefore, He accepts us all. That's kind of their mentality. God loves us. He accepts us all. Well, God does accept us all to come unto Him, but He is not accepting of all of our actions. He is not accepting of us living in sin. God expects us in His love to obey him, and in fact, that's what he says. That Jesus himself said, "If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments." So there is an if-then. There is a qualification. There is a dependency. Uh, God's love is there, no doubt. But the idea that, that that just you know covers over everything, it can cover a multitude of sins. Yes if we repent and if we do and obey the things that God wants us to. Yeah, God's love is there. I'm not trying to dispute that at all. But what you see is just a half part given most of the time in the social gospels out here or these, these ideas of people just saying, oh, God just loves you. Just come on in. You can do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. Well, that's not the case, and that's not what scriptures say uh, there. God expects us to follow Him and to do those things obediently. And it goes back to a much deeper conversation probably than we can even get into today. But it's going to go with our fourth point if we ever make it there this morning, which we probably won't, the idea of the judgment of God. (coughs) We're going to be held accountable. Even though God loves us and His deity screams at us that He loves us. I mean, there's no doubt, there should be no doubt, that who Christ was and what He did for us tells us that He loves us. You know, you might as well just leave these these walls right now. If if that's if you're just gonna just blatantly you know, disregard that deity of Christ, it's not gonna it's not gonna help you get anywhere in your faith. But it screams and tells us and teaches us and implores us that 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 God loves us. But there's also the back the other flip side. You know, there's other the other rest of the story, so to speak, of God's judgment. He's not gonna allow us just to do whatever we want to do. That's what got man in trouble to begin with. <laughs> is the fact that they did whatever they wanted to do in the garden, right? Directly violated what the one commandment God said not to do, they did it. And you see that there will be punishment meted out. It doesn't mean God didn't love us. God disciplines those who he loves, Hebrews says. So, you know, you think about that concept in life and you're going to get there. But yes, it's abused, it's used incorrectly, and unfortunately so many people get the idea that they can just do whatever they want to do because God loves them. And he doesn't care. Well, if that's the mentality you have about a parent, then we need to have some parenting lessons. Because that's not what God our Father wants us to do in our lives. The deity of Christ, I think, screams out and tells us all these things. But also you think about the grace of God. The second point here, the second doctrine, and I don't want to get ingrained too much in this, is a very short passage uh, talking about the, the grace of God. But in verses 5 through 7, you see a, a, an allusion and a talk here about God's grace. And the idea that James emphasizes that this really goes to God's choosing. You know, God's deity is who God is. All right, that's just God is, the I am. Here, the idea of God's grace screams and points us to the idea that God chooses us. There is a choosing factor that God actually uh, puts into play and and all the choices and the things that he's done for us. If salvation were on the basis of merit, it wouldn't uh, be led by grace. And we're not going to refute that. We cannot earn our way to heaven. We cannot. We, we are not someone who ever can show our worth for someone such as, you know, someone perfect, such as Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. But what we can see is that God loved us enough that he had this favor, this, this uh, mercy toward us, so that God's choice is, is that those who can't earn and really don't deserve his salvation will still receive it. Of course, there's contingencies there. They'll receive it when they're obedient, when they follow what he says. You know, there's some things there that, but it's not because we deserve it. None of us deserve any of it. I can't go out and do enough things for God to be saved. And what you see in this passage of Scripture, verses 5 through 7, you know, alludes to the idea that the grace of God saves us completely on the basis of the work of Christ on the cross and not because of anything else we have or we can do to earn it. Uh, God's grace is there. And God's grace, of course, is talked about in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. And and God's grace helps us understand how we should relate to others. And how does it do that? How does James try to put those two together here to emphasize to the early Christians that God's grace should motivate them to treat others better, should influence them to make better choices as they reach out to the rich or the poor man, as they, they think about those who are in need of, of Christ and His salvation around us. Well, what we see in God's grace is God's choosing, when He chose, it ignores a couple things. First of all, it ignores national differences. Acts chapter 10, I've already alluded to the idea of the, the, the Gentiles being brought into the fold. You know, Jews you know, were first, to be honest, they were cho- His chosen people. But the Gentiles were also included. It wasn't just for the Jews alone. And in fact, God emphasized that He showed it in Acts chapter 10 whenever Cornelius and his household were brought in as Christians there, were baptized and were fully accepted just as the other disciples were. And God ignored national differences when it comes to His granting of grace to those who needed to be saved. The topic of the church council in Acts chapter 15 was really... You know, must a Gentile become a Jew in order to become a Christian? You know, does someone who wants to, that's a Gentile, wants to become a Christian have to do that middle step of being circumcised? Uh, I'm very, you know, I, I, I'd love to have been there in Acts chapter 15 to hear that conversation. We don't hear the whole conversation, by the way. Uh, we hear James, we hear Peter. And when you read Acts chapter 15, I can only imagine what the conversations were among the men there leading the church about, do we have to make sure that men are circumcised? You know, and talking about that as a conversation, we don't talk about that today. And circumcision is not something we want to discuss openly. Uh, it's very awkward probably for us to even talk about what circumcision is. But the early church struggled with it. Why? Because it was a sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. If you were not circumcised, you were not a, a chosen of God. And so the, the, the first century struggled with the inclusion factor here because you had two different nationalities. You've got Gentile or the Greek, and, and you got the Jews. And do the Gentiles have to become Jews, in essence, before they become Christians? And Acts chapter 15 blows that barrier out of the water. There's no other question again. God is not a chooser of one nation over another. He doesn't care. And Acts chapter 10 emphasized that. Peter, in his explanation in Acts chapter 15, goes back and references Acts chapter 10 and says, Hey, God did this. Why should we ever think that he's going to impose any other separation from here on out? He's made it clear. God has spoken. He doesn't care what nationality you come from. It does not matter in God's eyes. The grace of God flows to Jews and Gentiles. It, it flows to, to any nationality that, that we're to, to become. And, and God here, we see the emphasis being here. There's no difference. There's no difference when it comes to condemnation in Romans chapter 2 or when it comes to salvation as we read in Romans chapter 10. It doesn't matter. And God's grace covers all nationality. Also, what you see is God's grace. God chooses to ignore social differences and that's really kind of hits home here to James chapter 2 and what James is trying to get out here with the people is the fact that it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor it doesn't matter if you're a high society or a low society this side of the railroad tracks or that side of the railroad tracks it doesn't matter to God because God ignores social differences. Masters and slaves a good example in the New Testament scriptures in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 9 and and around that area they're talking about master and slave relationship there. It didn't matter if you're a master or servant. It didn't matter in God's eyes. It didn't matter. He didn't care about your social status. Of course, I think social status now, I think Facebook and all that kind of stuff, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about it didn't matter where you were in life. It didn't matter you know, how you got what you got or if you were just barely scraping by. God's grace was given and is given to those. The Lord, you know, looks down and his grace covers all. It is something that is, is extended. And you see this stern rebuke in verses 6 and 7 as you see uh, James talking about those who try to differentiate or try to dishonor one over the other because of the social status. He says, you dishonor the poor man. It's not the rich man who oppresses you and personally drags you into court. Do they not blaspheme the, the, the fair name by which you have been called? And he says here, you know, here you are differentiating based upon some social status, some ability, you know, economic status. Why are you doing so? The illusion goes back to That's not what Jesus, you know, I can just see the common aside thing there. Uh, these hypothetical, these rhetorical questions James asks. So that's not what Jesus did. I can fully see James saying that to the people when he speaks to them. That's not what our Lord would want. Why? Because God himself looked down upon us, giving us his grace and ignored any social difference we might have had or we do have. In that day, it was easier for the rich person to exploit the poor and influence decisions at court, make themselves even richer. Unfortunately, we even have same similar sins that may be committed even today uh, around us, from the rich and the poor, even within and without the church. We see the sins that, that you know, Bring us down and differentiate us, unfortunately, far too often. Our Lord was poor. He, he, too, was even the victim of injustice that was perpetrated by the wealthy leaders of his day. You think back. Why was Jesus brought before the council? Why was Jesus tried? How were they able to do those things? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they were influential, wealthy people. You see the abuse that can occur. But what God says and what Jesus says is it doesn't matter where you come from. When you come to me, you're all equal. The doctrine of God's grace forces us to relate to people on the basis of God's plan and not on the basis of human merit or social status. You know, a church that's broken down into classes, not Bible classes, (laughs) classes as in sex or financial social situations, is not how God wants it to be. He wants us all to be inclusive. He wants us to be unified. He wants us to be together. It's not the church that magnifies the grace of God. When Christ died, Jesus broke down the walls that separated Jews and Gentiles. When Christ died, He broke down the wall that separated male and female. He broke down those walls, so it tried to differentiate between the rich and the poor. We don't need to build those walls back up. And what James is telling them is when you consider the grace of God, you're going to treat others the way God wants you to treat them. And you're going to treat others the way that God treats them because God looks on all of us regardless of nationality, regardless of our socioeconomic status, and extends his grace to us all. That's how we should think. That's how we should react. That's how we should preach and teach to others that we glorify and magnify the grace that God has given to us. Thirdly, real quick... The Word of God, as mentioned here, is one of the doctrines, the basis there of, of uh, an example of how we should impact and how it should impact and change the way we treat and react to other individuals. Although it's always important for us to defend the truth of God's Word. Now you think around us, <clears throat> the authority the, uh, of God's Word being the authoritative measuring stick is, is consistently challenged. It's very interesting. The book that I'm using, I think he originally wrote it in 1978. And it said, I think the phrase he used in here is, in recent years, believers have waged battles over the inspiration and authority of the word of God. And I think in 1978, I'm dating myself. That's when I was born. Um, I'm not trying to make anybody feel young or old in here. But I'm thinking in recent years, <laughs> that's when the authority of the Bible has been attacked. And I'm thinking, man, that's been going on for 30 some odd years, I guess now. And forget about recent years. You look around us today and the Word of God is challenged on every side. Well, that's why people like you know that, that work over at Apologetics Press are in full throttle trying to defend the Word of God. That's why we have to be full throttle defending the Word of God. That's why we have to stand up and teach against all these things that are surrounding us about people trying to go against the things that are in God's Word. Why? Because they doubt the credibility and the authoritativeness of God's Word. If this thing doesn't have any authority, this, the Word of God, this is my Bible, If it doesn't have any kind of authority in your life, then throw everything else out. Throw it all out. But the authority and the the inspiration of the Word of God is paramount to a Christian living a Christian life. Now what you see here, James looking at in verses 8 through 11 alludes to and talks about the fulfilling of the Scripture here. And it says, If however you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now there's an allusion here to the idea that the basic doctrinal principle being that the Word of God is authoritative, it is inspired, and it should be influential in our lives. And that's what you're seeing here in James chapter two. He's trying to say, "Listen, people, you've got to understand the authority of the Word of God, but there's even something more than that. There's something more. The authority of the Word of God should be enacted. It should be exemplified in our lives. And you're seeing here in the passage here, we must never forget that our lives should be the best defense of the proof of the gospel. Now, I'm a firm believer, and there's a lot of people that discuss this and talk about that, hey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to be the only Bible that people talk about or that people know or people see, and I think you've got to do that. The idea of of Matthew and and Jesus saying we're the light of the world, we're the salt, we can't lose our savor. we've got to go out and exemplify and show people that we indeed do believe that things are truth, to the extent that we are going out and doing it in our own lives. We've got to do those things. That's not enough necessarily, but it is one of the greatest defenses for those who want to point fingers and say that there is no true God, that there is no living Word of God. Every Bible student and every person that, that, that believes in God should understand that we've got to exemplify and not just defend the truth of God's Word, but we've got to live the truth. Our lives and ministries are the best defense. For all those attacks. Now, where does this fit in in James? Well, James alludes back to the idea uh, of this law of royal law, is the way he says it here in James chapter two, verse eight. He talks about the idea and uses this royal law to remind us how to treat others. Well, what is this royal law? Well, you look at it; it's, it's a one we're probably pretty familiar with. You know, when the lawyer came to Jesus and said, "Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in all scriptures?" Matthew twenty-five, I think it is. What, what, do you, what, is, what is the greatest commandment? What does, God, what does Jesus say to him? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And, seconds likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when you think about the royal law, why is this the royal law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, James uses this. I believe to remind the people there who are most likely of Jewish background, the idea that that loving your neighbor as yourself is paramount to following and fulfilling the Word of God. Showing its authority, showing its power, showing its influence. If you don't follow what he calls the royal law, being love your neighbor as yourself, you might as well throw the whole Bible out. Now, how does he use it? Well, look real quickly with me. First thing you see is that James emphasizes the fact that this this royal law is called, it's called the royal law because it's given by the king. This was given. By God. And you go back, there's an allusion, of course, to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, because he's quoting the Old Testament when he talks about this royal law. And Leviticus, of course, is the giving of the law to the Israelite people by God Himself. And God directly hands down this law to the people and says, Follow this law. You see, Jesus in his ministry goes on and carries it out as well. He goes on and helps try to re-emphasize it as he goes through his ministry while he's here on this earth. Jesus told us in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we've got to love our neighbor. Well, who's our neighbor was the question, right? And Jesus' response in that parable and the explanation thereafter emphasizes the fact that anyone in need is our neighbor. Anyone. And so you see the, the continual importance. It's not a matter of geography, but it's a matter of opportunity. The, import, the important question is not who is my neighbor, but to whom can I be a neighbor when you really fulfill this law that God gives. When Christ stood up and he told them to love their neighbor as yourself, and they went on to say, okay, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus pretty much points out to them, you need to be looking to be a neighbor to everyone. Now, how does that impact us? Well, it impacts us because it comes from authority. It's given by the king, as we see there. It's given by God, given by Christ, again, reemphasized. But it also rules all other laws. Imagine, that's why it's called the royal law here by James. It rules everything else. Why? Well, you go back and see uh, what Jesus' explanation is, is that all other laws fall pretty much under that. (laughs) That's it. Because, you know, in reality, if everyone loved others as themselves... If you looked around us and there, you, know, you had individuals who truly followed this commandment of God, there would be no need for thousands of other complex laws. To be honest with you, it would put me as a state prosecutor out of a job. Why? Because if you love others as yourself, you're going to treat them the way that they should be treated because you truly love them. Pick up here next week. Thank you all for your attention.